Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin and how did they end? Let's find out on episode 39, The World in 800 BC. Previously on The Fan of History, we covered the events of the 9th century BC. Now it's time for a world tour to see who is where in 800 BC. Dan, why don't you start us off on this magical journey? Oh, yes. I love these episodes. We did one for 1000 BC. That was the first episode I did with Kevin. Mm -hmm. And then you and I did 900 BC. But this is a much more complicated world. Oh, yes. Maybe just because we know more, we have more sources, but it seems to be, uh, we, we know a lot more and it seems to be a more complicated situation. We will, of course, be focusing on civilizations because they uh, are easier to track. <laughs> All the tribal societies that have been around forever and will still ar- be around for a while after this, right. they don't leave much trace. Hmm. But we... Uh, we can't tell really what their state is about and how it works. And so we'll focus on the civilizations. And this episode is meant to be the backdrop for the upcoming episodes of the 8th century BC, which is a very exciting century. So uh, let's uh, travel the world. We can start by saying that the greatest nation state in the world is by far the Western Zhou dynasty in China. So the, the area controlled by the Western Zhou is enormous compared to, and the amount of people right. compared to anywhere else. 
We can estimate the world population at about 65 to 70 million people, which is very, which are very few compared to today. Than right. It's like we have we have that many people in one state. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you do. <laughs> and uh, these people are very concentrated around the great agricultural areas like Mesopotamia and, of course, the the Yangtze River Valley in China. Sure. So they are very unevenly distributed. People that are still tribal Stone Age societies, they. Uh, they take up a lot of space per person, so they don't have much population. And this is also called then the Archaic Age, and that mainly relates to Greece, because Greece has this period called the Archaic Age, starting in 800 BC, going to 500 BC, until you get to classic Greece. Ah, uh, yes, the one we all study in school. Yes. So, so let's take a look at archaic Greece first then. Okay. We talked about Sparta in three episodes. And uh, early Sparta is around. Athens never went anywhere, but it's now recovering from the Dark Age. We have uh, Corinth, Argus. We have Knossos on Crete. Okay. Uh, which is just another Greek city and nothing nothing like it was uh, 800 years earlier than this. And then we have the cities of the Aegean Sea, of which Miletus is the biggest one, and maybe uh, one of the strongest Greek cities overall. But the two most powerful Greek cities, both are on the island of Euboea, second biggest island in the Aegean Sea. And uh, I had never heard of this island before I started researching ancient history. No, me either. And in the 8th century BC, we will learn why. Uh... We, we don't hear that much about Chalcis, Lefkandi and old Eritrea. Because something uh, terrible is going to happen to the uh -oh. island of Euboea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the Eubeans have been way ahead of the rest of the Greeks for a long while now. They founded the first colony of Almina in Syria. We talked about that. They have an extensive sea trade network. And if you talk about Greeks in, in the Mediterranean in 800 BC, they are almost certainly Eubeans from either Chalcis or this old Eritrea city. Uh, they have contacts with the Phoenicians on Euboea, and it is... Uh, Eubea, that is one of the places where the Greeks will learn to write again, because the Greeks don't have, they have forgotten their written language in the long passage of the Dark Age. And they still don't know how to read and write in 800 BC. Wow. It's amazing we know anything without, <laughs> without knowing the, without having written language. Yes, and... Uh, they, it will still be a while before they start to write history. Uh, it will be almost 300 years from this time. So all the things we'll talk about in the 8th century BC will be like ancient legends. It will be like us writing about uh, things that happened in the 18th century. So, um, but a lot, the Greeks will explode in the 8th century BC and colonize most of the Mediterranean. 
which they have not done at all at this point. So it would be interesting to know what they did. <laughs> They're just living day to day, I guess. Yeah, it's a, we'll we'll spend a whole episode talking about this colonization process in itself and how how it worked and what caused it, etc. So I will not go into that now. Okay. But let's stay in Europe and go to Italy. All right. It's the home of the Villanovans. They are about to become the Etruscans. It's very gradual, so it's hard to say when it happens. <laughs> but uh, we now know, since only 2013, that the Etruscans were indeed native people. Uh, in uh, some sense, although they have been in Italy for a long time. Okay. As the Villanovans, or as other cultures before, they did not come from anywhere else. There's a lot of other people living in Italy, including the Latins, and some of them even live on the Palatine Hill itself in 800 BC. But there is no, uh, no unit called Rome. Okay. And I have a big disappointment for everyone when we get to 753 BC because Rome will not be founded in 753 BC. It's all something is already there on the Palatine Hill. But uh, Rome, as a, an Etruscan city, will enter our narrative in 616 BC when the Latins get Etruscan rulers. There is a ton of tribal people in Italy as well, but the thing, the Villanovans are the the civilization, or the Etruscans will be the civilization soon. They do have trading contacts with the Phoenicians already. And they also have trading contacts with uh, Northern Europe from the Amber Road, which we talked about in an episode. Right. And if you go north from Italy, you can find the Hallstatt culture that we talked about in the last episode. They are pre-Celtic, but not all Celts were from the Hallstatt culture. It's an early Iron Age culture centered around uh, Salzburg in Austria. Oh, that's right. S salt, salt town near, yes. the, near the salt mines. Salt Castle, perhaps even. I don't know, it's Salt Town. Uh, okay, Bert, I guess. Okay, that makes sense. Salt Castle. Yeah, and they have a very distinctive... Uh, they have very distinctive goods. You can see if something is from the Hallstatt culture, and we can see how this material culture spreads out from the site of Hallstatt itself. But uh, they are not a civilization in the sense that they don't record their history. And they have no writing, but uh, they will make waves in Europe. <laughs> so that was Europe, not very exciting in this early age. Europe, a backwater. So uh, where do you want to go next? Let's go to the Middle East. Oh, <laughs> well, the Middle East has been civilized for thousands and thousands of years yes already they, these are ancient civilizations at this time and uh, we have 
I made a list of the power rankings of the Middle East. So which states are the most powerful in 800 BC? And I made a top eight list. Top eight? Yes. Top eight power ranking. Yeah, do you want to read them? Sure, I'll read them like I would if I was on the radio. Yeah, starting with number eight. Starting with number eight, Israel. Yes, the ancient kingdom of Israel. Coming in at number seven, the Medes. The Medes will climb this uh, list later on, but for now they're just a nuisance to the Assyrians. Number six, Aram, Damascus. Oh yes, Aram, Damascus, the most powerful of the Syrian kingdoms. Number five, hanging on, Egypt. (laughs) Yes, Egypt is still hanging on and very ancient, but in decline. Number four, the Manians. Up and coming Manians. Number three, Elam. Elam is number three. Number two, Urartu. Yes, while uh, Urartu is uh, doing very well, while number one is uh, not doing as well. But still at number one, Assyria. That's a fantastic voice. (laughs) Yes. Assyria, the Neo-Assyrian Empire started in 911 BC and uh, their control over the west, over the Mediterranean coast is really loose at this point. They have neglected Syria and the central authority of the Neo-Assyrian Empire is losing power in 800 BC, but they still have the best army in the world at this time. The Assyrians know how to fight. They know how to build, uh, how to uh, how to make good weapons, and they worship Asher, the god of war, and have to go on these yearly campaigns. But it's been uh, like thirty years from the glory days of the empire. They are also a great source for events because they keep a lot of records in stone that we have today. The capital of the Assyrian Empire is Kala modern Nimrud and that's the number one power in the Middle East. If we go south from Assyria we find Babylonia centered around the city of Babylon. It has been beaten up very hard by the Assyrians, too hard. So it has fallen into chaos and we don't, we are not even sure, we don't know who is king of Babylonia at this point, and we don't even know if the Assyrians have any control over Babylonia or if it's just uh, each man for himself in Babylon at this point. Hmm. Um, yeah, what were you saying? I'll say that, that that's, that's so sad, such a rich culture just fading away. Don't worry, it will outlive the Assyrians. All right. We'll come back. Uh, I forgot to mention that the king of Assyria at this point is Adad-Nirari III. He's the sixth king of the empire. Six kings in 111 years. It means that you rule quite some time if you're an Assyrian king. And he will be around until 783 BC. Uh, There is a problem then, as I said, in Syria. And the greatest anti-Assyrian power in the West is Aram Damascus. 
Um, Adar Nirari III is a warrior king. He campaigned most years. We only have the records of his Western campaign, so he seems very focused on Syria, but he campaigned in every direction. We just don't know what he did. And he has an in incredibly powerful field marshal, the Turtanu is the title. Mm -hmm. His name is Shamshi Ilu. And he will be around much longer than king and will eventually become more powerful than the Assyrian king. Uh, yeah. About Babylon. Yeah. The people in Babylonia are very uh, different. This has been a place that people have arrived to over a long time in history and they have not assimilated. Uh, so we have uh, the Kassites who once ruled all of Babylonia. They now have their own kingdom called Namri in the north of Babylonia. And they're still somewhat tribal. And we have the Chaldeans in the south, in the marches of the sea land. They are much more tribal than the Kassites. And uh, they are more powerful. And all over the place we have the Arameans acting a bit like orcs. Uh, <laughs> not liking cities. And very much liking to steal other people's stuff. They like to smash and grab. Yes. And of course, uh, the Assyrians are in the in the neighborhood and will occasionally raid into Babylonia. But uh, Babylonia itself, uh, which is now then in the Dark Age, it has been around since the 19th century BC. So going down the power list, we have uh, we have Elam. Elam is in the south of Iran today. It's uh, straight east or east-southeast from Babylon. Mm -hmm. It's uh, almost as old as Egypt. Some people argue that Elam might even be older, that this might be the cradle of civilization. They have a unique language that is uh, almost lost to us today. Um, we don't know. It, it, there has been a kingdom called Elam for thousands of years. Uh, much longer than Babylonian, and this is the Neo-Elamite one period, lasting until 70, 770 BC, and we don't know much about Elam. It's very mysterious to us, and uh, we know that they had female rulers at some point, right? But they will appear in only one role in our history, almost. They are violently opposed to Assyria. And they will fight Assyrian dominance of the Middle East at every opportunity. Probably feeling very safe in the southern Sagros Mountains. Quite far from the Assyrians, they will act against the Assyrians all the time. And they have already fought the Assyrians in the 810s BC. So whenever anybody wants to fight the Assyrians, they can trust the Elamites to be there for them. <laughs> to help them out. Yes, um, they have uh, an important city called Anshan, and uh, their sort of location in the southern Sagros Mountains means that they are constantly threatened by mountain tribes from the north. 
And these mountain tribes are kept in check by the Elamites. So if something was to happen to Elam, these mountain tribes of which you can uh, name the Persians and the Medes, for example, okay. they could run rampant if Elam wasn't around. So let's hope Elam stays around <laughs> for our story. And then we have the Maneans. The Maneans are to the east, to the north of, to the east, west of these mountain tribes, to the east of Assyria, also in the Sagros Mountains, but in the northern Sagros, close to Lake Urmia, which is a place of much conflict because they border on, it's a triangle of states here, Assyria, Urartu, and the Maneans. And the Maneans are the weakest of these states, but they somehow still manage to have a pretty good time in the century ahead. And they might even be the overlords of the Medes, that the Medes and Persians are vassals to the Maneans, because hmm. they do have some influence over northern Iran, even if they don't control most of the area. And they border directly on the Medes. They will have their peak in the 8th century BC. So what else do we have? We have a couple of small kingdoms, the little kingdom of Ilippi. It's like an offshoot of Elam and a buffered state against the Assyrians. Uh, the Assyrians have uh, a lot to do with the Sagros Mountains, but they mainly fight the Medes and the Maneans. And they seem to be like, if they don't have anyone else to fight, they will fight the Medes, probably to steal their horses. <laughs> Seems to be a popular, popular pastime. Yeah, there's not like the, the Medes are not building cities and anything you can conquer, but they do have a lot of great horses, and the Assyrians like horses. But to the north of Assyria is the state of Urartu that ranked mm -hmm. number two on our list, and they have an interesting approach to. Assyria, because they know that they can't beat the Assyrians in open warfare. Right. So they have fortified the Armenian mountains, and then they have a ball north of their fortresses. So the Assyrians can no longer get in. They could earlier in the 9th century BC. Right. And now they just wall off the Assyrians to come into their land, and they fight smaller states to the north and to the east and to the west. So it's like a, a huge cancer growing on top of Assyria to the north. And it's ruled by Menua. And this area is so rich compared to in natural resources like metals and stuff. Right. Compared to Assyria. <laughs> so they will eventually, they're they definitely a threat to Assyria from the north. And now they're even sort of appearing to the west and to the east of Assyria as well. And these small kingdoms that Urartu preys on in, in the northern mountains next to the Russian steppe, they in turn are keeping, they know of a threat that is not very, it's not top of mind to the Middle East, but it will eventually become a huge, huge threat. And these are the nomads of the Russian steppe. And who who are they? 
the, the big, the biggest, uh, the nearest tribe of any significance are the Cimmerians. Cimmerians. I want to yell Krom so bad. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But they are Russian horse people. They are not of Turkish origin, but it's too early for the Turks. Okay. But they behave a lot like the Mongols or, or the Huns. Uh, and they are being pressured by an even more powerful horse people called the Scythians. So the Scythians are taking over Cimmerian grazing grounds. And now the Cimmerians will have to find, in the century coming, a new place to live. Uh-oh. So we will have, in the 8th century BC, a major barbarian invasion of the Middle East. Yes. Much like the Huns and Mongols. Sumerian barbarians. I've been waiting for it, Dan. Waiting. <laughs> yeah, it sounds pretty awesome. Yes. Uh, okay. In Syria, then, and Cilicia, we still have the Neo-Hittite kingdoms. The Hittite Empire fell in... It was 400 years ago now. But the Neo-Hittites still try to live as if the neo as if the Hittite Empire was still around. So they keep up the culture, the art, the writing of the Hittite Empire. Hmm. And they have managed to impress the Arameans of the area. They wanted to behave like orcs, but they saw all this Hittite stuff and they were like, oh, you guys are so great. <laughs> So the Neo-Hittites have mingled, intermingled with the Arameans and formed like Neo-Hittite Aramean states. Huh. Small states, city-states pretty much. Right. But the Assyrians are slowly eating every single one of these city-states. And they project their power into, onto the Mediterranean coast from Till Barsip, which is the site of Shamshi Ilu, the field marshal. Uh, this place is also called Kar Shalmaneser, and it is the base of Assyrian Western power. Uh, all of these states are supposed to be loyal vassals to Assyria at this point. They mm -hmm. are supposed to pay tribute, but Assyria has have neglected this because they were obsessed with beating up the Babylonians. <laughs> So there was a recent rebellion from the city-state of Arpad, and Arpad has been crushed. And the most powerful of these uh, northern Syrian states is probably Hamas, because they have been allied to the Assyrians all the time. In the southern Levant, we find Aram Damascus, then, the most powerful <coughs> Aramean state, also the, maybe the one with the least Neo-Hittite influence, so it's quite exceptional that the Armenians have a state unless Neo-Hittites tell them how to have a state. But this means that Aram Damascus is very powerful and their favorite occupation is to fight Israel. Right. And Hassel is the king of Damascus. We have a couple of small states, Ammon, Moab and Edom, all famous in the Bible. Right. They are probably vassal states to Hazael of Damascus in 800 BC. Um, to the south of Israel, also close to these Damascan vassal states, there may be the state of Judah, 
or there may not be the state of Judah. It's extremely unclear in 800 BC. And this might come to shock of you, shock to you if you read your Bible, but the actual proof for the existence of Judah is very questionable at this point. But in 790 BC, I couldn't understand how to talk about the events without assuming that there is a kingdom of Judah. So we will have Judah enter the story very shortly, I think in two episodes. Okay. To the west and south of Judah are the Philistine states, uh, several small states that just recently were raided by Damascus. So everyone who's afraid of Damascus, they rely on Israel <laughs> to stop Damascus. Israel is ruled by Jehoahaz uh, in 800 BC. Its capital is Samaria. Uh, Jehoahaz is a follower of Yahweh, but this is all very hard to... Uh, the Bible, the Old Testament is quite historically accurate for this period, but when the Old Testament tells if somebody believes in the Lord or not, mm -hmm. it has undergone a lot of editing in the 6th century, so we don't really know. But the image of Jehoahaz is that he likes the Lord, but he's like a little friendly to all the pagans in Israel as well. And Israel is still very polytheistic. And it's probably that if you were a follower of Yahweh, you still had other gods as well. Especially Asherah, the mother goddess of the Semites, worshipped uh, as the wife of Yahweh at this point. Oh, wow. That seems quite heretic. Yeah. <laughs> quite a bit. The Phoenicians used to have a lot of influence over Israel, but this has been crushed by Jehoahaz's father. And Israel is now in bad trouble from uh, Aram Damascus. And they are praying to every god they could can find that somebody will save them from Aaron Damascus. Yikes. On the Lebanese coast and the northern coast, or the, the eastern coast, but to the north of the Mediterranean, mm -hmm. is Phoenicia. This is a, a collection of city-states that have been there forever. Ancient merchant kingdoms the creators of the alphabet. Uh, Tyre is the strongest of the Phoenician states, and it is possible that Tyre rules all of the Phoenician states in 800 BC, uh, or they don't. It's unclear. But they do have the alphabet. They are writing a lot of stuff, and we have lost all of it, almost. Mm. That's because awful. <laughs> yeah, that's super awful. These guys uh, know stuff that we want to know, but they wrote it down on papyrus. They mm. were living by the coast in humid conditions. The papyrus did not survive till no. our day. And the Assyrians went, uh, guys, you should write things on stone in the desert. Right. And the Phoenicians said, no, 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 no. Papyrus, much cheaper. Much, <laughs> much, much cheaper and faster. <laughs> Much yes. like we are doing today with our electronic uh, media that uh, right. will probably not be around in 2,800 years. No, it will not. 
the Phoenicians are worried about the great strength of the Neo-Syrian Empire, but they have so far managed to survive because they are suppliers of the Assyrians. And they are suppliers of luxury goods from the Mediterranean that the Assyrians would have to do without if there was no Phoenicia. So they survived that way, and they are actually expanding into the Mediterranean as well. They have been colonizing the Mediterranean for a long time. But we will see in this century the great difference between the way the Phoenicians colonized the Mediterranean compared to how the Greeks will do it. Because the Phoenicians are always only interested in trade. They don't really want power. They want money. They want money. They're giving up power for money. And their greatest colony, the, the colony we all know the best. It's not their greatest colony, actually, but it is the most famous colony in 800. It's not the greatest colony in 800 BC, but it's the <laughs> colony we know most about today. Right. And it's Carthage. Carthage. Yes. Good, good old Carthage, Texas. Oh, wait, not that <laughs> no, one. No, that's not it. Okay. Um. There are very poor sources for Carthage in the 8th century BC. It could still be ruled by Dido. It was founded in 814 BC. It still has extremely strong connections to the mother city of Tyre. Mm -hmm. And it will... We won't really talk about Carthage in the narrative until 650 BC. And uh, the, mo the more important uh, colonies right now, 800 BC, are probably in Cyprus, Spain, or Sardinia. And then we have the place I really don't want to talk about in 800 BC, but it's, because it's such a mess compared to what it once was. It's so sad. Yes, and it's of course Egypt. Oh, Poor Egypt. Egypt. The Iron Age has started and they haven't noticed. <laughs> they, they're not going to. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Keep up, Dan. They are still in the Bronze Age. Yikes. They are weak and divided, but they still have the fantastic wealth machine called the Nile. Right. This river 
fuels Egypt in a in a way that no other place really does in the world. So you have all this food and you can have a huge population. And it's like nothing bad. Even if things go bad, the Nile is still there providing food with its four floodings. And uh, or at least you could get four harvests. Mm -hmm. But the Egyptians have not managed this very well. So there are in 800 BC, three pharaohs in Egypt oh. and a couple of independent warships who may or may not call themselves pharaohs. <laughs> and everyone who is anything in Egypt is a Libyan. So they are of Libyan descent and they still maintain some sort of cultural identity apart from the Egyptians, but they are in reality behaving like Egyptians. There's no like, n there's nothing that is Libyan culture in Egypt at this time, but the, the people in, in power are Libyans. I gotcha. So the three main pharaohs then, apart from the great chiefs of the Ma and the great chiefs of the Libu, who also have power in Egypt, the pharaohs are Shoshenk III, is the pharaoh of the north in the Delta. Pedubast the first is the pharaoh of the south in Thebes, and Osorkon the third is the pharaoh of uh, the middle <laughs> in Heracleopolis. Wow! And if you want to talk about dynasties, you have uh, the twenty-second and the twenty-third going on at the same time. <laughs> to the south of Egypt is the nation called Kush, Kush. or Nubia. This is, uh, whereas Egyptians are not black, the Nubians are. And this area has been colonized by the new kingdom of Egypt, which is now well behind us. <laughs> but they have a lot of Egyptian stuff, Egyptian temples, and they are now their own nation state with Egyptian influence, but still remaining culturally distinct from Egypt. And they are actually growing stronger and we might hear from them again hmm. in the eighth century BC. And now we go from pretty well-documented things into areas that are extremely uncertain, but I still want to cover them. Um, it's uh, ancient Arabia. So we had our first mention of Arabs at the Battle of Karkar in 853 BC. We have a small nation state called Dilmun, which is an ancient trading center. And all of these places on the Arabian Peninsula we'll talk about now, we only have secondary sources for. Dilmun had its high period in 2000 BC, but it seems to be still around. Uh, we have the kingdom of Saba. Uh, it's in Yemen. Uh, its capital was Marib. And the Romans will name this Arabia Felix. There is spice trade coming from... Uh, the Indian Ocean. Okay. What is the uh, suffix of Felix? 
What does that mean? Do you know? No, I don't know. What does that mean? <laughs> Google in real time. <laughs> Google. I don't know, actually. Okay. Uh, if somebody knows, please tell us in the comments. Yeah, because it seems... Uh, you know, we under I understand Arabia for the designation, but Felix has got to mean something. All right. It surely does. Uh, the Sabines have... Uh, not the Sabines, the Kingdom of Saba. Sabines are people in Italy. Uh, they have close contact with the Proto-Ethiopians in the Kingdom of Dumt. We also have a small kingdom called Magan. The Sumerians used to trade with this place. It is assumed to be located in Oman. And uh, there are several other just place names that we don't know much about on the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, we'll jump to Asia Minor, what is today Turkey. This is a mountainous region and it will be, it has been very important. It was the site of the Hittite Empire and it will be very important again, but it's extremely divided because of the mountains. So on the Ionian coast to the west, we have Greek settlements, most important is Miletus that we mentioned earlier. There are like people who behave like Greeks, but are not really Greeks. They have been under Greek culture influence for quite some time. And to other people, they will be indistinguishable from Greeks. And they are the Carians and the Lycians. And when, for example, the Assyrians talk about Greeks, they probably talk about the Carians most of the time. Hmm, okay. But there are two kingdoms that are somewhat influenced from the Greeks, but also distinct from the Greeks. They are Phrygia and Lydia. They will be important in short periods later. Uh, and <laughs> if you go from the Ionian coast, from the Aegean Sea, you have the Greek city-states there, but in the mountains you have the Mysians. And I love the Mysians because they don't care about Greek influence or states. And they're just violent hill tribes. <laughs> make a mess for everyone. They just and come they... down, mess stuff up, and then leave. Exactly. Simple. The, uh, there will be a very, very famous king in uh, Asia Minor in the 8th century BC, namely the one and only King Midas. King Midas? Wow. Yes. King Midas himself will appear in our narrative in the 8th century BC, but he's not around in 800. Okay. Cyprus biggest island in the eastern Mediterranean is Greek as well. So the Greeks have already spread out. They did that in the 12th century BC, most of this expansion to the east. But there is one Phoenician colony controlled by Tyre on Cyprus. Okay, let's move all uh, a long way away to India. Oh my gosh, we haven't talked about India in forever. And we haven't because they don't know how to read and write. They have forgotten how to read and write a long time ago. 
And everything that comes down to us from India is extremely uncertain at this point. So it's super hard to date anything. But the situation looks somewhat like this. The Indian king, the kingdoms, the Iron Age kingdoms of India, the civilizations say, are in the north of India. They are Vedic Aryans in the Vedic era. So the Vedic religion is like a, a precursor to Hinduism, but it's not Hinduism. They have composed the first Upanishads and they are being uh, orally transmitted <laughs> to, <laughs> to uh, the next generation. All right. Um, Panchala is the, most, is the name of the most powerful kingdom in India. Many of the early ideas of Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism are taking form at this point. But uh, that's pretty much all we know about India. And that, when I started the Final History Project, this surprised me so much, because I thought I was going to learn a lot about India, but there's just no reliable information. Everything that speaks about this period is so religious and imaginative that you can't really count it as history right because if you well i guess i was thinking about the start of buddhism because you know buddha was a hindu yeah it's coming in the sixth century bc okay yeah which is a very very different world from this one we are describing here okay. in the sixth century bc there many of the fundaments of modern society are are in place uh, so let's go to the greatest state in the world. Did you pay attention? Do you know which one it is? I'm going to go with Western Zhou Dynasty. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, they are uh, having a good time. Uh, or a somewhat good time, at least. They are ruled by King Chuan of the Zhou. The capital of the world is Fenghao or Haojing. Uh, King Chuan is a good ruler. He's trying to do good, but his empire is suffering from a lot of problems. There are barbarian invasions, like there always are in China, but now there are, there are more barbarian invasions than there usually is. Uh, the noblemen are very powerful and they don't always obey the central authority of the Joe King. And uh, this guy will be around until 782 BC. And the Western Joe and the Joe dynasty, in reality, but not in name, will fall in 771 BC. And we'll spend a whole episode talking about the fall of the Western Joe dynasty. But the seeds are there in 800 BC. And there are problems in... China. Uh, they, they let the uh, they let the nobles get too powerful, Dan. Yes, they did, which is uh, a very common thing in empires. Yes, you expand to a point that you can't control it day to day, then you have to give up some power. But they usually take way more than they should get. What happened to the Western Jew was that uh, if they had loyal followers to the king. They gave them territory, places to rule, and then they remained loyal. But then they had sons, and you had sons, and 
after a couple of generations that seemed like the loyalty was the reason for the loyalty was forgotten. Right. So let's head to Africa. Oh wow! Been a while. Yes, and um, there are no written sources from Africa. There is uh, no civilization in any sense that we talked about on the other continents. But there is the Bantu expansion going on. This began in 1000 BC and coincides with the Nok culture in Nigeria. Seems to be coming from Nigeria. Mm -hmm. so it will be going on until 300 AD. So it's a long process. These people, the Bantu, speak the Proto-Bantu language group. And they spread all over Africa. And they seem to be winning the competition for land with the Khoisan people that are in all of Southern Africa. Every time they come across them. And the Bantus seem... It is possible that the Bantus knew agriculture, whereas the Khoisan didn't. And that this was their great edge. Uh, they will not have iron until 400 BC. And there will not really be a great state in Africa south of the Sahara until 1400 AD. So not a great future for Africa. Oh. Looking at 800 BC. I wonder if it suffers from the same issue. Well, I would probably... Probably not the place to get into it, but same issue as in North America. We, I saw a thing about how the direction our mountain range and the direction of our major rivers kind of hindered our advancement here. Ooh. Unlike in Europe, um, because there were so many barriers to cross to get all the way across. It, oh. um, yeah, it was, it was very interesting. It talked about um the way the our the mountain range forms here in North America and our major rivers and i wonder if africa itself has the same issue yeah you definitely don't have the tigris or the euphrates or the yangtze or the nile right. and that seems to be what you need to have to be an early center of civilization right for the record, I like to remind people that, of course, Egypt is in Africa, but culturally, uh, there is a world of difference between Egypt and uh, Kush, for that matter, uh, compared to the rest of Africa. And uh, the Mediterranean coast is sort of part of the Mediterranean and not of Africa in 800 BC. And then we have the culture called the Lapita culture. The Lapita culture is the second great, greatest seafarer nation of the world in 800 BC, the greatest one being the Phoenicians. And the Lapita culture are in the South Pacific. They are traversing the South Pacific in small raggedy canoes moving between the islands. And this yeah. seems so insane that anybody could do this in 800 BC. It's crazy. One of the things I, I read about this culture is they could lay in their boats, you know, the hollowed, basically the hollowed out logs. Yeah. And um, they could lay in the boat and 
feel um, the how the waves hit the boat, which direction was closest to land? <laughs> okay. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? That seems like a useful skill. That could no explain kidding. Oh. Basically, you know, it's, it's, it's concentrating on how the waves feel and that slight difference, you know, from the, uh, you know, the recursion of the wave from the shore. That's, if that is true, that is amazing. That sounds amazing. Um, yeah, they have this uncanny ability to find islands, but they yeah. do not find New Zealand. That's the one place they don't find. And uh, of course, uh, or uh, there are no great seafaring nations in Africa, so they haven't found Madagascar. So New Zealand and Madagascar are two big places that are good for human habitation and that have not seen any Homo sapiens yet, even in 800 BC. Note to self, if I invent a time machine, colonize New Zealand and Madagascar and avoid the rest of the world. I think New Zealand is a lot nicer to live in than Madagascar, okay. which is kind of humid and hot. Oh, that's true. And then, of course, we have the Americas. Yes. And as you said, there is not a lot going on in North America. We have the PowerPoint culture and a lot of like Stone Age cultures. Mm-hmm. But the things that are of interest are happening in Mexico and in South America. Sorry, US. And the great civilization of the of Mexico and of the Americas, far ahead of anyone else, is the Olmecs. Those Olmecs were doing amazing things. Yes. It was not uh, very it was not until very recently that we discovered that the Olmecs were actually not the first civilization in the Americas. But the one civilization that came before them is now long gone in 800 BC. So they are the greatest civilization of the Americas. So you, you were in Mexico recently. Yes, I was. I was in Mexico last week. Did you um, see any Olmec stuff? Uh, drove by uh, Chichen Itza. I did not... Or I say drove by it. It's kind of hidden, but we went in the area. You could see, we saw it. I didn't climb up it. Um, didn't have the time, but I did want to see it. That's uh, it's it's huge. And um, climbing up it would uh, make me go out of breath. I'm I'm certain. But <laughs> the uh, the cool thing is, it's not the first uh, thing in the area that I've seen of that culture. But um, it's when you go and you think about the time frame, the massive scale of things that they were building, I mean, it rivals stuff we build today. It's, it's incredible. You don't, you know, you see the pyramids and you, th- you think, oh, well, Egypt was, you know, that's Egypt, blah, blah, blah. But then over here, you still have people building these incredible structures, incredible towns. It's, uh, it's inspiring <laughs> what you can do. And you said, like you said, they didn't have, they didn't have the wheel. How'd they get all this stuff up there? That's uh, <laughs> a good question. <laughs> right. Uh, and you, you have, you know, super fine lines between, um, you know, the, 
the stone is hewed in such a way that it fits perfectly smooth. That's amazing. Did it you, is amazing. <laughs> have you seen any of their gigantic heads? Yes, one. I saw one. And it's, it is exactly that. It is a huge head. It's huge. What, what was your impression of it? What, what did you feel that they, they wanted to tell you with that huge head? That's a good question. It didn't seem, when just looking at it, it didn't seem religious. I mean, I guess it might be, but they had other things that were clearly religious because they're kind of, I don't want to say crazy because that's not fair, but, you know, very esoteric. But these are just like people. I mean, maybe it was, you know, you get a new leader and you carve a head that kind of looks like them. I don't know. That's one theory that's been thrown around, that they are uh, rulers. That's To me, that makes the most sense just compared to the other stuff I've seen them do. Just didn't doesn't fit to me. Again, you know, I'm just a layman. So but, now uh, I know what I want on my tomb. I want an Olmec head on myself. Oh my gosh, that would be so amazing. <laughs> How big was it? Um, gosh, almost six foot, so two meters. Oh, that's a lot of stone. It's insane. <laughs> yeah. The Olmecs really did, uh, they were more suitable for the YouTube show because all everything is so artistic. There are the heads, the pyramids, all their art but we can't read the writing, so we don't really know what's going on with the Olmecs. I know. It's sad. There's it's a I was telling sad. I was telling Dan earlier when you when this the coolest thing is on Cozumel. If you ever get to go to Cozumel, um, in the center of the, the uh, ancient town there, uh, I was telling Dan this this was a place that is religious you'd have come here and you'd be put in a hot box and you'd have visions. Um, you'd come here before you get married or whatever to pay your respects. But in the middle of this area, there's, you know, there's still walkways, you know, thousands of years old at this point, still function just fine. In the middle, there is carved out of stone. It is the Island of Cozumel. I mean, the stone and you know, it's this, this square area that's been carved out. What? The stone itself in the middle of it is the same shape and relative size of Cozumel. And around Cozum the Cozumel stone is the reef structure. It's basically a map telling you how to get in and out of Cozumel safely. So that makes you wonder how they did that. Oh my gosh, it's crazy. <laughs> I, like how, how would we do it without like sonar and stuff? Uh, okay, I'm going to carve a replica of the island here. And you guys, you go out and dive and document yes. the reefs for me. And Be back you, here tomorrow. Yeah. Do you tell me where they are, if there's any spots between them that we can get larger boats? Wow. That's nuts. Uh, so the Olmecs are centered in La Venta, but it seems that their cities are of a religious nature or... Mm -hmm. they, they are not not military fortresses and they most of the people live in the countryside and of course as in all ancient cultures right uh, and uh, compared to uh, 900 BC the Olmecs are no longer alone because as another people have 
a civilization going very close to the Olmecs and probably under heavy influence from the Olmecs. Mm -hmm. They are the Mayans, much right. more famous than the uh, Olmecs. Right. Yeah, you could say that um, the Mayans, the Mayans probably had more influence on Cozumel, but it's just, yeah, but the whole the whole area, because I've, I've seen both Olmec, I've seen Mayan, it all seems... It all seems very similar. Yeah, that's uh, that's a big point of how much the Olmecs influenced the Mayans. It's a big point of debate. Uh, the Mayans had their first statelet, La Blanca. It's on the Pacific coast. Mm -hmm. So they are like off from the really good areas uh, in the shadow of the Olmecs. They are migrating into the lowlands on the Yucatan Peninsula. The Mayans are growing beans, maize, chili peppers, and squash. And they, they have been there for a long time, but now they are like forming into statelets under influence from the Olmecs. And then there is nothing in all of South America except, or no civilizations at least, there are tribal peoples. But in Peru, something is going on. And it's, of course, my favorite culture yeah. of the world in 800 BC. The Jaguar hippies. Yes, the Jaguar hippies of the Shavin. They did not write things down, so we don't really know what's going on at all. But they, they, their culture seems amazing. They have fantastic art. They seem to spread their influence through inspiration and not violence. They don't have walled cities. They don't have a lot of weapons. It seems that they're, they don't have tools used to killing humans. So they can have knives, but they use their knives for other stuff. Uh, they do fantastic work with metal. They seem to worship jaguars, and they also seem to turn into jaguars. I would like to see that. Yes, and one reason for that is that they are doing a crap ton of drugs. <laughs> <laughs> they have psychedelic drugs, uh, which they uh, take through the nose. Really? They have, yeah, they have special tools for this. So they, they do a ton of drugs, and I like to imagine it as like, I am the priest, I can turn into Jaguar. Uh, no, you can't. Oh, well, try this. Oh, God, you turned into Jaguar. Yeah. Oh, my God, there's Jaguars everywhere. <laughs> yeah, there's Jaguars everywhere. <laughs> and um, yeah, sadly, we don't know much about the Chavin, but they are there in Peru doing stuff. And that's it. That's apologies to the rest of the world because these are the civilizations that made some impression on us today so we could remember them. They, they had writing or we found their archaeology. Most of the rest of the world is tribal, no records. <laughs> no, we, we, we probably know what kind of what people lived in Scandinavia, for example, where I come from. Right. But it's you can't really speak about civilizations in the sense of these places we have discussed. So if you feel that your area was neglected, uh, accept my apologies. 
All right, so what are we talking about in the next episode? Oh, well, we will talk about a lot of interesting things because we will start to cover the 8th century BC and we'll go all the way to 701 BC. If you want us to go further, you can support us at patreon.com slash fanofhistory because we are looking for funding to go even further than 701 BC and the great destruction of Sennacherib that happens in 701 BC. But here are some highlights of the 8th century BC. Would you like to read them? Sure. Let's see. Well, we're going to start covering the 8th century BC, the century of the first Olympic game. That'll be cool. We will have a sports report. Hey, actual sports. Every four years. <laughs> yeah, every four years. We can do. We can keep up that pace. It says we'll meet the great, Assyri- the greatest Assyrian king there ever was. That's some high standards. Yes. We'll finally meet. Um, how do you pronounce that? Pa. Pi? Yeah, I just, I just learned that I probably have pronounced it wrong in the YouTube show. It's uh, Pa. Pia. Pia. Pia, the Nubian king who will restore order in Egypt. Check that out. Nubian king restoring order in Egypt. The Western Zhou dynasty will fall in spectacular fashion. The Greeks will finally remember how to read and write. Well, they'll learn it again. In fact, the Greeks will swarm out all over the Mediterranean in a huge colonizational wave. Um, we'll learn about the first uh, Mycenaean War and the Lelatine War in Greece. So they start colonizing and start having wars. Yes. Interesting. We will have a major barbarian invasion of the Middle East. And also we'll discuss the fall of Israel and try to find the ten lost tribes well, that's a feat right there. Yes, the lost tribes of Israel. <laughs> uh, I'd like to mention one more thing about the Greeks. Yes. Because there is, we'll discuss that a lot in the upcoming century, but there is a fundamental difference between the Greeks and everyone else in the whole world. And it is no, no mere chance that we speak so highly of the Greeks today and that we think about the Greeks as the founders of Western civilization because they are entirely different from everyone else. And it will be very clear when they learn to read and write again. Mm-hmm. Because the first things they read, the first things they write are different from every, everyone else in the whole world. When they learn writing, they write bookkeeping and they write, I am so great, look at what I did. The Greeks, they will write about entirely different matters. Well, that's interesting. Can't wait for that. All right. All right. Well, um, don't forget the YouTube channel. Please like and subscribe. Share with your friends. Tell everybody, if you like history, you're bound to know other people that like history. Let's go ahead and tell them about our show. Also, we could use some reviews on iTunes. We really like those. We have facebook.com slash fan of history, Twitter at the fan of history, the fan of history dot wordpress.com. And like Dan said, patreon.com slash 
fan of history. So, for this week, I am Brennan. I'm Dom. And this has been The Fan of History. Yay! If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.